All right. Well, uh, again, thank you for your flexibility for where we are today uh, here on the property. Uh, we come to the fourth and final installment in the series on fearing man. Um, and uh, what we're talking about here is what it means to start, excuse me, to stop looking towards others for something and instead start looking towards others to give something and how we are reorienting ourselves towards people accordingly. Um, because the paradigm we're talking about is instead of fearing people and needing people, what will you think of me and how will you affirm me and how will you support me? Instead, we want to think about how can I love people? How can I serve people? So just to be clear, if you've not been with us in the previous weeks, and I'll just say this by a brief summary, and beyond that, I encourage you to get on our YouTube channel, find that on our webpage, however you want to find that material. The three previous lessons are fundamental and foundational to what I'm teaching today. And I say that just to recognize what I'm teaching today is sort of building on top of that. But just by way of brief review to that, the idea is that the default temptation for any one of us, not just the ones present here, but the ones listening later, the ones who are not with us this morning, is that we often interact with other people because we want something from them. We want affirmation, we want identity, we want security, we want it from our coworkers, from our bosses, from our spouses, from our friends, from our children. And it's, it informs so often so much of what we do. This is a prison. This is not how God intended us to live, in that prison. So what the Word of God is continuing to do is to basically not just open the door to that prison, telling you that you're free to walk out of it, but then telling you when you walk out of that prison cell, what do you do? Where do you go? How do you live? And so you want to kind of just cast a vision for a different life than a lot of us by default have practiced and or seen from others. It is profoundly common, I would say even comically common, to realize how often even seemingly the most strongest of personality and the most insecure and quiet of personality can struggle with the both the same problem, an insecurity in trying to find their identity and what other people think of them. While the one who's paralyzed because they have no sense of certainty and confidence, they're going to find it, therefore they're afraid to act, or the one who's acting with bravado and with prominence and personality, but still in their mind, sort of, what do you think of me? How do you assess me? Make sure that you either are intimidated by me, impressed by me, whatever, this is a prison for both, par both parties. What we're trying to think through is how to interact differently on this topic. Uh, just to let you know ahead of time, there's three exercises, three categories, if you will, three questions I'm going to give you to work on in your small groups, and you will have small groups, um, and that's a chance for you to kind of put some of this with some flesh on it. Take it from the principle to the practical. What does it look like for us to let this walk, stand up and walk and have some feet in our lives to have some traction that we can gain. So the idea is how do we think about appropriately responding? Now, we've heard before the counter to fearing man is fearing the Lord. This is commonly what you see, for example, in Proverbs as Solomon is talking to his son Rehoboam. The beginning of knowledge is to fear the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. There's a reference point, not first on who are you, who, is other, who are others, but who is God who's created you, how we interact with God accordingly. So as we think about fearing the Lord, here's a question that you're going to write down now, think about now to be prepared to interact with each other later. It's this. As you consider what it means to love God and love your neighbor, be thinking right now, 
about certain situations, people that you have a hard time maybe loving. And or flipping that perspective around, you might be more inclined to fear. Who is it in your life that's just hard to love? That coworker, that sibling, that parent that's hurt you years ago? And or you have a hard time not fearing. And I want you to think about how you can grow in demonstrating love and not fear in that relationship. So what I'm asking you, and you're, you, you can't give four examples. You only can give one example because time will limit you. And I've got two more of these, so even the time itself might be limiting and you're doing all this, but this is, even if not in your discussion for time, in your own, uh, your own reflection later yourself, how do I make this stand up and live? Growing in the fear of the Lord and love for others is not an overnight process. This can be a lifelong temptation. And just again, by... Uh, point of honesty and transparency as a also a reflection and solidarity, it is true, and this might be surprising to some of you, sometimes the most insecure people in the church are pastors. I say this because there can be a misnomer that the person who teaches the Bible all the time is a person who understands the Bible the best and applies it the most. And while it might be true, either because of their education and or their experience in teaching as much as they do, that they do understand the Bible, knowing the Bible and actually applying the Bible is not the same thing. I say this by way of application to say, it is a regular exercise that pastors, and I say this as a pastor myself, have to repeatedly practice to not find their identity in what their people think of them. You'll be surprised how common the fear of man is with pastors. Something as basic as how many people show up today in this room by attendance, by comparison of previous Saturdays with other teachers can be a temptation. What will these guys think of me being the teacher today versus some other guy being the teacher today? Is that a point of validation? But it's not just in the attendance. Sometimes it can be in something like the giving. How many people give? What do they give? Do they support that? Just words of affirmation. Oh, pastor, thank you for what you taught. I want to invite other people to hear you teach. You recognize, friends, this is not just like, hey, when you get out of your 20s, you'll grow up and fear of man will be in the past because you're kind of insecure, trying to find your way. Or once you get married, you'll know that you've got the heart and the attention of a woman and she's committed to you. You don't have to worry about people think of it. You're fine. Or once you have kids, you're like, dude, I, what are you going to call me? You're going to call me like names like, hey, don't be a girl. Like, dude, that used to work earlier in my life. This doesn't work. I don't, doesn't, what do I care? I'm married and have kids. Like, what are you going to say to me? If you think that those sort of benchmarks in life by age, by accomplishment, will somehow by default make the fear of man just go away, it's just not true. And I say this not to discourage you. I say this actually to just sort of in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, remind you, no temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, including pastors who teach the lesson to you as well. So we are in a community of Christians in grace, learning together how to live differently than we default to in our flesh, modeled by the world and tempted to us by Satan. So I hope that to be a point of encouragement to you what we're trying to figure out is how to have a reorientation to God that is from God. What we want to recognize 
is how we indeed interact with other people because we don't need something from them, yet we do need them so we can show love to them. Our first text is going to be 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, just to give you a sense of orientation to the Bible, if you're not sure where 1 John is, go to the very back, back of your Bibles, the book of Revelation, and start turning to the left. You come into Jude, you'll come in 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, it's a crucial text, understanding God's love towards us, our love for God, and therefore why we want to show and need others to show love. So we'll start in 1 John chapter 4. We'll go down from there into chapter 5. Track with me as I read it. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, because, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. All right, so we'll stop there. So what we're seeing here is that the type of love God displays is not built upon the merit of the person that we are and what we've accomplished and therefore have secured. In other words, 
The love that God shows towards us is reorienting on how we think about love because it does not require the object of the love to have secured that love first. This is profoundly important because it's only in so much as you understand how God loves you, why God loves you, and deeply grasp that and be overwhelmed by that, that you begin to feel your heart be ready to understand why you can love other people who seemingly don't deserve that love. There's a direct correlation to your and my understanding of our love for other people as we recognize God's love for us. In fact, to reverse engineer this, I would say, kind of in keeping with 2 Peter chapter 1, if these virtues, these ways of acting, these ways of behaving, particularly in the application of our point today about loving people, is absent, ask yourself the question, why is that absent? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, he gives the answer. Because you have forgotten what? That you've been cleansed from your former sins. So the motivation and perspective on how and why we love other people is based upon our understanding of how God has loved us. This is significant because it really shows and gives us a foundation by which, by which our pride is dismantled. You are not that lovable. And therefore, to recognize the merit of another's actions as being worth you therefore loving them is not the point. In fact, so often here in the text, you continually find this point of loving other people as the manifestation of the profession that you love God, right? I mean, you kind of go back to the text, look at what he says here in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we are reorienting ourselves towards God. And again, the book that we've commonly referenced throughout this series is the book from Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Let me give you a citation from that, not a citation, rather, a quote from that. Ed Welch says the following, God fills us. He pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. God actually showers us with himself. It's not available to us when we adopt the shape of a cup of psychological needs. That is, if we want to be filled so that we can feel happy and better about ourselves, then we will never truly be deluged with God's love. The cup of our own desires is never able to catch the flood of God's love and blessing. When this cup of I wants is broken, it leaves us with a number of shapes or identities that God has given us. Priests, ambassadors, children of God, Christians. We think it's safer and more effective to look to other people to relieve our emptiness the love we desire, however, can only be found in the living God. At the risk of being uh, unnecessarily provocative, but only to be illustrative, one of the most common books cited today in interpersonal relationships, both in the context of marriage and even just friendship, 
or just sort of co-working, cohabitating relationships uh, is a book called The Five Love Languages. Has this been spoken about before in this series together? The Five Love Languages is a profoundly uh, popular book and how many it's been sold. And we have the five love languages of God, apparently, that's come out from that. Apparently, God can be summarized in his five love languages. It just sort of the whole world sort of gets looked at through the lens of these five love languages. Well, the purpose of this morning is not to give a book review in the five love languages, but to simply comment or two on why the premise can often be inaccurate or inaccurate and incomplete in how we assess people. The very premise of the opening sort of chapters is a sort of understanding implicitly, at times even explicitly, that in so much as I can identify how you like being loved, different maybe than me, I can love you better. But there becomes an implicit debtor's ethic by which having done that now for you, you will in turn learn that for me and respond likewise. In fact, what often happens is that a person can self-identify their love language and therefore inform another person as to how they can best be loved. And there are different things like gifts to be given and words of affection and, and ways of showing physical touch. And I'm just saying, I'll take all of them. Just, yeah, you can give me, I'll take your gifts. I'll take your words. You want to give me a hug? Let's bro hug it out for sure. My point in highlighting this is there is a common way that the world thinks that's made its way into the church, which is a therapeutic form of love, which puts yourself at the center of every relationship you've encountered, which inevitably makes life profoundly self-centered and unbelievably unkind and selfish in how you view the people around you. You're not trying to deny your identity and your existence. You're not trying to deny the person that God's created but to see yourself not just in the community with Christians, but in the community of other citizens and society around you and how God intends you to interact with them. We have a reorientation that's needed towards other people, loving and serving them, not fearing and needing. In fact, let me just, again, write that down. Thinking of people, not... fearing, and needing, but loving and serving. And I've, I've mentioned in passing, I'm going to come back to this in a little bit later this morning about how even this can be a distortion of self-love. And I do want to get to that. So I see if I'm writing on the wall behind the piece of paper. Our reorientation toward God, towards God helps us see others' true value and function. Others were not created to be feared, but for us to love them. So we need to think through this. And here's again a question you're going to have to answer in your small group. This is your second assignment. Thinking of what we've read in 1 John and some other texts we're going to see. In just a second, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. Here's the question. Provide a characteristic of God's love that informs the way we should love others. So from Scripture, provide a characteristic of God's love. It's multifaceted. His patience, his endurance, his 
sacrifice, his, his mercy, provide a characteristic of God's love that informs the way we should love others. Now, we think about this, this idea of loving others is not necessarily the same thing as being nice to others, sacrificing for others, or saying yes to others. In fact, sometimes niceness, sacrifice, and saying yes can be our clothing that our fear of man actually hides in. So what looks to be a form of loving others can actually be a form of self-love. I just had a conversation recently with a guy who uh, was just at just beside himself in an interaction with his spouse. And what was disorienting for both of them was that this one person in the party appears to be the most loving individual you could ever imagine being married to. The acts of kindness, the acts of service are endless. Like the kind of person that like you would not want to be married to because like they're just so nice. It kind of makes you feel bad about like, I could just want to be more nice like them. It just, just seemingly thoughtful after thoughtful and act of kindness and display of service over and over and over again. But what was surprising was this same person that was seemingly so kind accordingly and so endlessly characterized like this had this overwhelming outburst of anger to the point where they were damaging property in the house. And the spouse found themselves shocked at like, what, what just happened here? This person I know you to be here, it's like over here, it's like you just became like demon-possessed. And as the person that I talked, I said, tell me what was motivating this. We talked to this for a while and they said, honestly, this was driven by anger. And I said, okay, why anger here? So we began to drill into that. I said, anger here because I thought what I'd done over here would secure something for me that I was not getting from my spouse. Respect. Admiration. Peace. And instead, my spouse in this moment was giving me a barrage of accusation, of doubt, of fear, of suspicion. And I felt like I had done all of these things to guarantee that you would correspondingly give me this. And when I realized this person would give me this, in this moment, I just erupted extremely. And I didn't know how to process that emotion. And therefore, I actually, in my own embarrassment, damaged property in my anger. Those moments are actually I think small little gifts of God to kind of expose, ah, this thing I was doing that seemingly by everybody else's observation would look commendable, it's actually concerning. Because it shows this was actually a subtle form of self-love. I was loving you as a means to secure your love for me. And in time, over time, when I didn't get it like I thought I deserved it when I deserved it, I was exposed as my anger manifested itself. So even seemingly in these moments of serving, you have to try to get to the why behind the what of what you're doing and interacting with people. Now, how, who do we love and how do we serve? Let me give you some categories of how to think through this. And so here are these categories of, of sort of relationships. First one is gonna be God. Second one's going to be enemies. Third one is going to be non-Christians. 
fourth one is going to be neighbors. Next one is going to be family members. Other one is going to be Christians. I'm going to kind of respond in this way, kind of going through this together to think through what does it look like for us to show how we love people. Thinking about, again, loving God, think of what Christ said in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is significant because in this context, Jesus is being asked a question, what's the greatest commandment? He's referring to the, the, the questions being sort of asked in the teachings of Moses, of all the commands given, the 640 imperatives given by Moses, which one is the greatest? And this is the answer that Jesus gives. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the great and first commandment. Now he goes on to say, and the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Unlike the therapeutic secular culture, that we find ourselves in, there's no orientation towards God. In fact, there's an orientation towards self. A common phrase, perhaps by some, know thyself to thine own self be true, but scripture shows us and directs us another way. It says to know God and to know and love your neighbor, only then can you truly know what it means to know yourself. Let me put this in practical manifestation. A number of you are single. Got no issue with that. Actually commend the gift of singleness, even if it's for a season of life. But for those of you who still don't live at home as a single person, but live on your own, I highly counsel and recommend singles live with others. Not a command. I got no Bible verse for this stuff. It's a point of application and opportunity. The reason why is because it's only in the context or often helpfully in the context of being with another person, you get to find out who you really are. Because honestly, singleness provides a level of autonomy and individuality and opportunity to do what you want, when you want, eat what you want, wash your dishes when you want, have your lights, your schedule, everything the way you want, when you want. And the truth is, you're not sort of waking up every day going, okay, another day to be selfish. But instead, you'll find over time, you can develop habits and patterns that you don't realize can be, in some ways, unhelpful. Now, again, my point is not to demonize singles living by themselves. My point is to recognize whether or not it's in your living arrangements or in your overall relationships, people are helpful mirrors that God holds up in front of you as a way to learn things about yourself. Now, in my situation, I am married. And I don't mean to put that as a virtue above singleness. I just mean in sort of different stages and seasons of life. I was, and I lived on my own before I was married. I was shocked to find out things about myself that I did not know until I got married that I previously thought, I'm actually a pretty decent guy. And I'm really happy that my wife gets me. I mean, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a free market agent here. I could have just, you know, given myself away to any woman, but she got me and she ought to be thankful. And then it was like the stupidest things that I would fight over, that I would worry about, that I would be concerned about, that I would like, I mean, just, our first fight was over broken cookies. And it was all me, not her. I was like stupid beyond stupid. I was selfish. I was proud, I was overbearing, I was rude. We say, well, how does this relate to God? 
because God is showing things us about ourselves, our relationship to him and whether or not this actually has as great a weight and authority of his voice in our life as we realize when we put ourselves in the context of relationships with other people. The point is, is to recognize the gift that God gives us to recognize how to see and know others and to know God as we work out our relationships with others around us. Secondly is enemies. These could be characterized as those who want to harm us or have harmed us in the past. Just remind you of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, 27 and following through verse 33. Jesus says, I say to you, you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you in the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back, and if you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. This is a high expectation that Jesus gives of his followers to love our enemies. And sometimes the question can be, what does it mean to love my enemy? even somebody who's maybe trying to do me harm. Ed Welch again, and when people are big and God is small, it helps us here when he says, when confronted with enemies, we should go directly to the Psalms if we're not sure how to feel or what to say. When we're inclined to take matters into our own hands, the Psalms teach us to trust God. When we would insulate ourselves from pain, they teach us to trust God Instead of vowing that we will never again move close to another person, we learn to trust God. Instead of extinguishing hope, the Psalms teach us to trust God. It was the glory of God that was David's mission, not his own vindication, end quote. Just as a sidebar in ministry to recognize this, sometimes people who can struggle the most with loving other people, surprisingly, can be those in full-time ministry. Why? because they have loved people, sometimes some of the most difficult people for years on end, only to have those people slander them, abandon them, simply leave them with seemingly no words of repentance, appreciation, thankfulness. In fact, it's not uncommon particularly amongst pastors' wives, especially of an older generation, to tell younger pastors' wives, hey, when you're in a church setting, you should just know at the outset to not make friends with any women in the church. Don't expect to have women in the church be your friends. They might be friendly and for a time might appear to be and act and interact with you as a friend but they will over time abandon you, betray you, disappoint you. This exact counsel, for example, was given to my own wife by another well-intended older woman who had been with her husband in ministry for decades. Her counsel is coming from a place opposite of what Ed Welch is saying. 
Where what he's saying is that if you look to the Psalms, how do we fight against a default to withdraw from people and instead be drawn towards people because we don't need something from people that we always have been looking for this whole time? Well, friends, this is not unique to those in full-time ministry, pastors or their spouses. This is true as general Christians. One of the most common things I have to interact with in a foundations class, which was taught in here last night, Danny knows, others of you who are here know, is that there's a lot of reasons why people put their foot in the pool of the local church hesitantly to decide whether or not they're gonna commit back to it because in some previous experience, they encountered what they would kind of classify, seems rather hostile to word it like this, but an enemy. Somebody who betrayed them, somebody who slandered them, somebody who disappointed them. And they're saying, I don't want more of that again. So I would rather just kind of keep myself at a distance from the church. I, I know I need the Bible. I know general Christian communication is good for me, but to be fully invested, to be fully in, to let go of the side of the pool and swim in this, realizing I might encounter difficulty, that's, that's more than willing to pay right now. This can be a challenge. Another category of thinking about loving enemies can be even about those who perhaps want to do us harm. And I mean in a physical way. Well, sometimes loving an enemy includes turning them over to earthly authorities. If they've broken the law, it means physical separation to avoid further harm. We don't tell a wife who feels like she's in danger from her husband, who's either verbally threatening or has physically acted against her, you know what, you, you need to love him like Christ has loved you and therefore show that sacrificial love, trusting God by staying in that home. That's not the counsel we'd give as elders. We would say the way to love your spouse well is to separate yourself from the spouse to understand the reality that God is intending you to put yourself in this purposeful place of harm in order that that person might see the significance of these words spoken, these actions taken, and deal with it. The same way that we'd see that about criminal actions being taken. So I want to be very clear, and sometimes this can be a fallacy about Christianity, is that this idea of love is just idea almost like this domestic abuse generic kind of category, which is always forgive, always uh, endear, always enable, always support because you're going to love as a sort of the pacifism form of Christianity. That's actually not what the Bible is teaching here. God does give, for example, in Romans 13, the government to wield the sword. The third category here is non-Christians. These could fit into several of these categories of people. I think it's important to understand what it means to love people who are not followers of Christ. First of all, I think one of the most important things you can do for a non-Christian is to pray for them to pray for them. I guarantee you, that sounds so determinative. I would not be surprised. Let me reword my, if you found yourself in a regular practice of praying for those in your life, especially those you have a hard time with relationally, you will find your heart being softened towards them. Not praying about them, praying for them. Praying that the same mercy that God has shown you he would show them. We should pray for them. We should also be prepared to speak of the hope that's within us. Just this past week, I had an opportunity to interact with a friend who's not in Christ, 
wanting to interact and help him and encourage him, but to speak words of truth to him, words that I know in one part he would agree with and in one part he would not agree with. It's like, help me, but without making any reference to this. Uh, You're asking me to participate in an alternative world that I don't think exists. There is a God, he has created, and he's communicated. And at one point in the conversation, I remember saying to him uh, a common analogy that perhaps you've even said yourself. I said, do you understand that I was a beggar looking for bread and I found it and I found the bakery and all I want to do is help other beggars find that bread? How could I say, well, I'm sorry about your hunger. I'll sit with you in your starvation and leave you to yourself. I know the struggle, but then leave you to yourself. I want to help you. And that's not based on my own preference and personality. It's based upon what God has said. So there's a direct correlation to how I'm living in the hope I'm offering connected to Christ. Another way of category, rather, of loving people is our neighbors. Now, the significance here is not like, you know, the geographic people. It goes back to Matthew 22, verse 39. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Welch is talking here about this idea of a catch-all category. Age, ethnic, socioeconomic, political, personality. Uh, One of the things that I appreciated in a passing comment that was made last night in our foundations class was that a person was commenting on the fact that they were trying to kind of typecast Grace Church in kind of a way that we have subcategories within Miami. It's not just, is it Latin, is it Cuban, is it Venezuelan, is it Haitian, is it young, is it old, is it single, is it professionals? And they found themselves disoriented because it was like, well, it's, I think it's people. It was people. And this category of loving your neighbor is to love those around you regardless of their person or experience, who they are. Next category is our physical families. It's in the context of family that we first learn to show love and concern. It is in the context that we often find this greatest difficulty. You and I both know what's a reality in many, if not most of our homes. Sometimes the hardest people to love are the people that we are related to. By birth, by marriage, by adoption, we are related to. It's just complicated. And that's a real challenge to be able to work through. The last one is in the category of brothers and sisters. The New Testament is full of how we are to relate to each other in the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. This idea that our love for each other is actually our ability to testify of the power of the gospel, to love people accordingly. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13 and see this text in its context, to recognize some ways to do this, and this will be your third and final small group exercise, which we're going to get to in about 10 minutes. 1 Corinthians 13, start answering the question, what shape does this loving and serving take? Now, just to be clear in its text, in its context, 1 Corinthians 13 is not first and foremost a marriage verse to be read at your upcoming wedding. 
If you choose to do that, that's fine. My hope would be that you would still have whoever's reading that to let's explain what the context of that passage is. The context, of course, and the greater lesson of Corinthians is you got a bunch of new Christians in a very godless city who are the first time waking up to reality. I'm actually more connected to you in belief and relationship than I am to this unbelieving spouse I've been married to for years prior to knowing you. And I got all kinds of questions from like, well, should I divorce them? So what do I do with you? Furthermore, God's given us spiritual gifts, which are brand new, and I'm kind of impressed with myself, and I hope you are as well. So make sure you can see my spiritual gift talent show of what I can do and my theatrical performance so that you might realize what a gift I am to you guys. And furthermore, I have my own favorite personalities and preachers and pastors, and if you don't like mine, well, clearly you're wrong and I'm right, and I'm of Keller and you're of MacArthur and you're obviously wrong and I would prefer Piper and you're obviously wrong and I'm right and this is the reality of it. And so you just have let's like walk into the church, people. Walk into the church. In the middle of this, particularly chapters 12 through 14, section about spiritual gifts and divisions and issues of immaturity and how we serve, you have this text, 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read it to you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So here's the exercise. This is your third and final for your small group. Taking this text of 1 Corinthians 13, think together about these descriptions of love and think about how you can begin to apply these towards people that you otherwise might fear. Write these down. Pray about these things. Even end your time of prayer 
for yourself with each other. So let me give you a specific example. This has been a point of exercise for my wife and I, even just in our marriage reflections and conversation. The text, verse 7, says, love bears all things, love believes all things. There's a lot of things we don't know about people. People that said they're going to be here this morning, they're not here. People that are not here tomorrow that we thought were going to be here. People that we've not seen in a couple weeks, we don't know where they're at. People that are with people, we're not sure where they're doing there. There's all kinds of information about each other we do not know in the moment or over time. The question is, when we have that point of ignorance in our understanding about people, do we fill in the blank in a way that is one of suspicion and doubt that they are the right person doing the right thing? Or do we fill it in with the believing all things? Maybe they're not here because they're not feeling well. Not here this weekend because they're with family. Maybe not seeing because they're struggling with whatever might be happening in their life and they could use someone to care for them and pursue them and love them. What ends up happening a lot of times is that we exercise what's not listed in Scripture as a spiritual gift, which is the spiritual gift of suspicion. That's not a spiritual gift, friends. But we usually mask it behind the virtue of discernment. Defending, we should not be naive. I'm not advocating for naivete. I'm advocating for a gracious deferral believing the best of other people as a form of love until you know otherwise. And if you don't know and you want to know, then go ask them. Don't talk about them. Don't speculate about them. Pursue them and ask them. And how I can grow in this myself as a Christian. This is particularly something that's important for leaders of churches. Why? Because according to Hebrews 13, verse 7 and verse 17, they have to give an account for people, which means we have to know people. And when we don't know people, we should not suspect about people. We should then prayerfully pursue people so that we might know and care for them accordingly. Friends, imagine if we all did this together in the body of Christ. Think about this in the context of our covenant. If you're a member of Grace Church, let me remind you, if you're not a member of Grace Church, let me encourage you. The following statement I'm about to read to you, which I'm reading from our membership directory, the beginning of which two pages are our membership covenant, says the following. We will be devoted to one another in love. We will patiently bear with each other with humility and gentleness, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. So do you, do you see what sort of starts off with? We'll be devoted to one another in love. Love is what's motivating us, and then the actions vary in how we show that love for each other. I think as Christians in general, particularly as members of this local church, we would do well to review the membership covenant as like helpful bumper guards that kind of remind us what does it look like when I say I'm going to love somebody here at this church? How can I care for them accordingly? So lastly, as we begin to circle the runway to land the plane, 
We think about how we carry out this heart of love. What does it look like to love instead of fearing and needing people? Recognizing this, and I'm reminded of this, uh, Chris Jude had sent me a couple chapters to read through from things he was benefiting from, and I greatly benefited from it. Um, a book by Paul Tripp, and, uh, and um, last name is Lane. I forget his first name. Lane and Tripp. Relationships, subtitled, A Mess Worth Making. I think sometimes the reality is relationships are messier than we realize, and therefore not a commitment we want to make. But what I want to recognize is that, indeed, relationships are an opportunity for us to not just love people, but instead to love God as how we love people. The truth is, seemingly, isolation and autonomy offers less opportunity to be hurt, to be disappointed, but also offers less opportunity to love God and to love others. So we want to pursue communion, fight against the idea of withdrawing from people and centering life around ourselves. So here's a couple of things just to kind of help call you into this. Number one, consider your motivation. Consider your motivation. When it comes to loving and serving other people, consider what motivates you. Sometimes your desire to love other people can be born out of a desire to love yourself or Julia way to show love for others as God has loved you. So you want to ask the why behind the what. 1 Corinthians 13 exercise I gave you is an exercise in what you should do. This exercise is a question, why behind that what? Secondly, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as your example. So when you think about this, I'll just read it to you briefly. You don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read to you. A familiar passage for some, a new passage for others. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Paul's commending them. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we're looking at Jesus. Third, learn how to regularly pray for other people. Learn how to regularly pray for other people. Just again, as another resource that Grace Church members have been given, that is a is a gift to you as a way to prompt you to think about and pursue other people is our membership prayer directory, 31 days of the month. I have a copy of this in my Bible, and I have a copy of this by my bedside, and my wife pray every night together for the people of the day of the month. And We do this not because we just generally love each other, but because it also just kind of keeps our hearts soft and in mind towards one another. We care about people. And a practical way to do that is to show that by regularly praying for other people, even people that have not loved us well, that have disappointed us, or seemingly not what we hoped that they would be, how to pray for them. And then fourth is to think about how you can minister to others in specific ways. 
Think about how you can. So this, this gives you a chance to kind of be creative in the opportunities you have to serve other people. This means you have to be a student of other individuals. What is it about Nate that you've learned that's unique to Nate than Danny versus John in a way that would show love to Nate different than it would John? What is it that would be something that they would each enjoy differently in a way that shows a sense of individuality? I'm not just sort of generically loving you, but I'm particularly finding ways to show that love to you. I find a lot of times our ways of loving others is just kind of bland. Like uh, I, I show love to you by the fact that like I said hi to you. You're like, all right, I mean, it's a start. I'm proud of you. You got to start somewhere. But like, let's kind of move beyond kindergarten Christianity and move into some developmental opportunities of how to think intentionally about loving people. Sometimes different ways to love people is honestly to encourage people by you observing in them what they otherwise might miss in themselves, you can encourage them by pointing out evidences of God's grace in their life. So sometimes it's not just serving them by practical ways of like, I did something for you. I bought something for you. I provided something for you. Those are all good ways to serve. Sometimes loving people is just a way to encourage people. Here's the things I've seen I'm so encouraged by. Here's things about you that I'm just, man, I just so appreciate. Derek, one of the things I just love about you is how servant-hearted you are, brother. Like, how calmly, by reputation, you are known, friend, for when there's needs, you're like, hey, I've got the margin of time. I want to serve that person accordingly. Josh, one of the things I love about you is that you don't have the perspective as a truck owner. Oh, one of the hardest problems having a truck in the church is that everybody wants my truck. And I just want people to know I do not own a truck, so they want to ask if they can borrow my truck, let alone borrow me to borrow my truck. Instead, so often you said, no, this is actually one of the reasons I got a truck, is so I could serve other people. My friend, you're actually choosing possessions around an opportunity to serve people. Oftentimes when we get possessions, we want to serve ourselves. Luke, I appreciate the fact that in a short amount of time, six weeks here in Miami, You introduce yourself from a distance in the form of an email and a text. Hey, I'm coming for this class, but how can I during this class find margin of time and opportunity to know other people to serve the church and love people and help them grow in their walk with Christ? That'll help me grow my walk with Christ. How can I help others grow in their walk with Christ? Do you see what I'm doing there? I'm not flattering this person. Flattery is what you would say to them that you would not say behind their back. Flattery is a form of self-love. I'm saying something nice to you to make you like me. No, no, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm encouraging you, which is a form of loving you, by pointing out evidences of God's grace in you. When you otherwise might be discouraged, you're not further along in your walk with Christ. Others might be discouraged that you are laboring and it's seemingly accomplishing nothing. They say, friend, your labor is not in vain. I think a lot of times, just something as basic as encouragement, as a form of love, is missed by most people, especially guys. So imagine with me a vision for a community of Christians, particularly the men, who are just known for repeatedly encouraging each other in text, in conversation, call. Man, here's the things I just see. I'm so thankful. John Glass purposely has a separate room in his house that he might show love to people like Shane and others and purposely enjoys this space. He might just say, hey, God's given me an opportunity of which I can afford, I, John Glass, 
to have a two-bedroom apartment in Miami. That's a quite an accomplishment if you're a single guy. So that my other bedroom is not just a form of like making money for myself. I can spend on myself to get an even nicer motorcycle than he has. He's got a really nice motorcycle. You might be interested now in getting some money. Might be interested now in getting some money. But how commonly John has said, God has given me this so I can serve other people. Whether it's my room, whether it's my vehicle, whether it's my trip to Miami for my classes and my time, I want to take what God's given me and serve other people. Friends, you can love people by giving them that kind of encouragement of what you see. As a result of this, we're being unified together, enjoying loving one another. Why do we do this? So people think well of you? So people think well of us? No, so people think well of the Lord. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, this new commandment I give to you, that you shall love one another. In doing so, they will know that you're disciples of mine. So we want to put God's glory on display. Ephesians 1, God does an amazing work in sinners' lives from eternity past to eternity future. But the time in which we see it and unfold and participating in it, every single time throughout that time, it repeatedly says, three different times in verses 3 through 14, to the praise of his glorious grace.